We are so thankful um, to the Lord for modern hymn writers. This morning, two groups in particular, City of Light, Sovereign Grace Ministries, that the Lord has equipped his people to serve the church so well, and then to bring it in-house and thank Troy and the worship team for the time and dedication they put in to help leading us in corporate song. We, we are so thankful. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it up to the letter to the Hebrews. Give you a moment to find this letter in the New Testament. So with your Bibles open, really this morning, um, by way of introducing this letter to us, this epistle, I want to read what we've already read together, the grace verse this month, the very opening to the letter to the Hebrews. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. As we look at this letter, some may be really familiar with Hebrews. Some maybe have not spent a whole lot of time. Maybe for some, this is your very first time to hear that this isn't actually some kind of Old Testament writing, Hebrews. And you're seeing, wow, this is actually a book in the New Testament written to believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Wherever you find yourself on that spectrum, I want us to see with your Bibles open, so you were at the beginning, I want you now turn to the end of Hebrews chapter 13. Just so quickly we worked through the book, can you believe it? It's amazing. The very end of this letter is really helpful in laying the groundwork for where we're going, what the Lord is providing for his people in this particular book of the Bible. We see in verse 22, the author, the writer, saying this to the original recipients of the letter. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Now, you may go 13 chapters. That's not very brief. But the point that I want us to kind of hone in on is the word exhortation. This is a letter written to a group of people with a purpose or intention, goal, aim. And he he tells us what he's going to be about in this book. When you look up the definition of exhortation, you find this. The form of words intended to incite and encourage. Words written intended for this purpose, to incite and encourage. Now, some may be going, I'm not real familiar with incite, so let me tell you the definition of incite, because it does help. To move the mind to action by persuasion. To stir up, to rouse, to spur on. 
If you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, spurring one another on, okay, that's starting to resonate. So there is an aim here, a word of exhortation. Words put together, inspired by the Spirit of God, to incite and encourage. Now, we need for a a few moments to think, as we're introducing this letter, to consider who is writing it and who is the intended audience, the first recipients of this letter. Now, typically, if you're familiar with reading letters in the New Testament referred to as epistles, you will see right off the bat the way that they're introduced, both the name of the author and the recipient, really just in a few opening verses. And flipping back to chapter 1 of Hebrews, we don't see that. And so this has led many to ask those questions, who's writing this and who are the recipients God, in his providence, did not reveal to us the human author of the letter to the Hebrews. Now, in the title, it being written to Hebrews lets us know that the audience were Jewish believers, but we're not even told exactly where they're from. There are some, some cues, some clues given that, that kind of maybe help us formulate a hypothesis, but there's a reason, and we're not told both the author or where the original audience is from. Now, most church fathers attest to the author being the Apostle Paul. If you are sitting here this day and you're opening up your Bible and it's a King James Version, you will even see in the title of the letter to the Hebrews, the, the Apostle Paul's name injected. So for much of church history, many have looked at the Apostle Paul being the author. If you're into grammar and and syntax and the way in which a a letter is written in the original um, Greek, you will note that there are a lot of differences in Hebrews than what we typically find in the Apostle Paul's writing, which has led others to, to second guess whether or not it was him that wrote Hebrews. Some have proposed that maybe he had help, like Luke, who was along with Paul in a lot of his missionary journeys. Luke and Paul may have co-wrote this letter. Others, when you read Hebrews and you're seeing the, uh, how eloquent it is in, in the Greek, some have thought, well, maybe it's, maybe it's Apollos. We're, we're told in Acts chapter 18 this description. He was an eloquent, eloquent man a Jewish believer who was competent in the scriptures. And man, if you work through Hebrews, it is just rooted in Old Testament scriptures, references and unpacking, and so maybe Apollos. It's good to note also that when thinking, well, maybe it is Paul, that when someone writes to a particular audience at a particular time, they may change the way in which they write. So just think about this. If, you, if you're writing a letter, not many of us are taking up pens and writing letters these days, but if you're writing to like a colleague, you're going to write a certain way than you would if you were writing to your bride or your husband. Your letters to different people, audiences, may, may look different, may read a little differently. So to just throw that out as an uh, impossibility, I, I, wouldn't, I would kind of pause and just 
say, well, maybe it's not definitive that it was or it wasn't the Apostle Paul. But thinking about Pauline authorship, there are some things that do, at least for myself as I'm studying, lean that direction that this could be of Paul, whether he co-wrote but had a huge hand in it. One is the structure. When you read Paul's epistles and you work through Hebrews and then you read other letters in the New Testament, his way in which he lays out uh, his letters um, in his epistles, we find similar here. So he begins with um, exposition, and in Hebrews it goes for quite a long ways, and then application. That is kind of his flow, and we see that here in this book as well. Exposition, expounding upon great truths, and then application. Uh, and then also thinking about the book of Hebrews, writing to Hebrews, Jewish Christians, we know from the New Testament that the Apostle Paul uh, was one trained. And we're told in Acts chapter 22, verse 3, him saying, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel or Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God. Paul knew the Old Testament scriptures well and would be one who could write a letter like this to a group of Jewish Christians. With your Bible still open to the end, there's also some things in this final greetings that, that help us think possibly this could be the Apostle Paul, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see if he comes soon. See you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. So just thinking about what we, what we see in the final greetings, the colleague Timothy is an indication that, okay, the Apostle Paul and Timothy were, were close-knit throughout the, the, the Apostle Paul's ministry. The location, Italy, the Apostle Paul was imprisoned in Rome. And then lastly, that conclusion, that conclusion sounds like something that the Apostle Paul would write. Grace be with all of you. Now, with all of that said, one of the church fathers, Origen, writes this, and what he writes here we can agree with. What is the very truth in this matter? Who the author is? God only knows. So we enter into the letter of Hebrews not knowing definitively who it was who penned these words, but knowing that we have it right where we have it, just the way God would have it for us. Now, with the audience... Hebrews, like I have mentioned, is written to a group of Christians who were wrestling with the cost of their discipleship, the cost of commitment to Christ. This is where this book is so applicable to all of us. As you are called to be a follower of Christ by grace through faith in Christ, we have to lay this reality before us. There is a cost of discipleship. It may look a little different to some than to others, given your family dynamic, 
where you live, who you work with. But when you look at Jewish Christians being brought to faith in Christ, they are experiencing ever presently before them the cost of their commitment. Persons whose worlds a lot of times are falling apart, realizing that if you're just, if you're just looking through your eyes physically, looking around at the lay of the land, this call to Christianity has really brought no privileges, so to speak. In fact, it appears to mark these individuals out for a fresh experience of suffering. First century Jewish believers encountered relational hurt, loss of property, their freedom, and perhaps even their lives. The cost of discipleship was real. I want you to imagine for a moment a group of people gathering in a small room or maybe a basement of a house or, or maybe even a cave with a little bit of bread and a little bit of wine together huddled in this small group, this small gathering. They sing songs, they read from the scriptures, and they pray together. So simple, so bare bones, just a group of people getting together. Now, contrast that to the religion of religions, so to speak, Judaism. The pomp, the glory of the temple, the ornate priestly attire, the wealth, the feasts, the traditions, the rites and ceremonies. It was robust in its external economy. Why does the writer of Hebrews spend so much time focused on covenant, temple, priestly office, sacrifices? Because he's writing to a group of believers who, when just looking at what's around them, seems to be struggling with Christianity being better, Christ being superior to what they're experiencing. At this point of this letter being written, before A.D. 70, the temple still stood in Jerusalem and the Levitical priesthood still functioned. The Jews had been given divine revelation. They had a divinely appointed place to worship. They have been a people who have observed for hundreds and hundreds of years God's divine revelation and even the consequences for disobedience and rebellion against their God. Think of the Assyrian invasion, the Babylonian invasion. And now, in becoming followers of Christ, they are forsaking the old. And now, on top of that, they are suffering. Questions have to be going through their heads. Have we made a mistake? Is all of this been a big mistake? Not only are they experiencing persecution from the pagans, from the Romans, but also from their fellow Jews. Some are thinking about even turning back. It looks, it seems like we might have gotten this wrong. And the writer 
inspired by the Spirit of God, is writing this letter to help them help them see, help them experience Christianity is better. Christ is better. And 13 chapters, it's going to take a lot of convincing. And maybe you're sitting here right now, and you look at the landscape of the world around you, and you also are maybe second-guessing, just questioning what you see and what you what you experience, what promises have been made to those in Christ, and maybe there is a temptation to question. The reason why we are spending such a good chunk of time here in this kind of opening is because when people read through the letter to the Hebrews, you'll hear this if you're a believer and you've read through the book, man, there are some really confusing parts of Hebrews. There are some parts that I mean, what I've been taught and what I read just don't align, and I am struggling. I'm confused. And the reason why we want to spend a little bit more time thinking about the audience is in helping us interpret this book. Keeping the original audience in mind is crucial to following who the writer is addressing at certain points throughout the epistle, throughout the letter especially when we get to the controversial passages. And so, just to kind of sketch this out for, for us, we've identified, okay, this is written to the Hebrews, so this is a group of Jewish Christians. There is a spectrum of where those Jewish Christians find themselves on their journey of understanding what it means to follow Christ Jesus as their Savior and as their Lord in their particular context and time. So... There are three that I want to kind of just quickly identify. The first, you have believers in Christ who understand that the new covenant is new in a lot of ways. And so the ceremonies and rituals of the old covenant, they have a pretty clear understanding that there was was a break. Christ came and he fulfilled. And so they've been discipled well. They understand that that there was shadow in the old and Christ is the substance. Then you also have a group, though, who are, in a sense, confused in some ways. They profess faith in Christ, the Messiah, the one that was promised has come, but they are uncertain with their relationship with the old covenant. Some of you may be sitting here going, I'm confused about my relationship as a new covenant believer with the old covenant. The book of Hebrews is helpful for us. They have reverence for the old rites and ceremonies. And what we see in the book of Acts, with these believers, the apostles are meek, gentle, and come alongside and walk with them in discipleship. Because their confusion is not... not in, in the place or category of the gospel being at stake if you have some confusion. So the gospel is not at stake, according to the apostles and how they interact with these confused Jewish Christians, but they want to come alongside them and help. Discipleship is, is teaching, it's equipping, it's helping a saint grow in their knowledge and love of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Then you have a third group. Some who have accepted, accepted Jesus as the Messiah, but out of a strong conviction, they believe observance to the Old Testament customs is essential, hear me, to justification. We see this also in Acts when it comes to circumcision. The gospel is being compromised, and with these, the apostles don't mess around with the gospel being at stake in this type of belief that is contrary to what Christ has come and fulfilled. So Dr. John Brown, written many, many years ago, says this, and I think it's helpful as we enter into understanding the audience who received the letter to the Hebrews. And it helps us also have sympathy for where they land kind of on that spectrum. So for Jews coming to faith in Christ, instead of perceiving that under the new economy of things, there was neither Jew nor Gentile, but that without reference to external distinctions, all believers in Christ Jesus were now to live together in the closest of bonds of spiritual attachment and holy society, they dreamed of the Gentiles, yes, the Gentiles being admitted, but to the participation of the Jewish church through means of the Messiah. And that everything that the Jews experienced, the external economy, was to remain unaltered to the end of the world. Do you see there's a big difference there in understanding what Christ has come and accomplished and inaugurated in his coming? There were many Jews who said, okay, we see in the Old Testament that there will be an, an opening up for the Gentiles to come and be a part of this thing, but this thing is always going to look like the way that we've experienced it in the past. And so they need to be corrected. Their biblical theology needs to be clarified and worked out. Rebuke and admonishment where they're wrong and help where they need to be corrected. That's kind of the beginnings of the lay of the land as we look at this letter. Now, with your Bibles open and looking at the opening, I want to begin by saying theology matters. What we believe informs every aspect of our lives. We're going to see that in the book of Hebrews in particular. He begins, the writer, by describing to us and the readers a God who speaks. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke. Have you ever thought about this before? There was grace before the incarnation, the birth of Christ. There is grace in God speaking. The gospel is not God's first word to humanity. The incarnation, the life, death, burial, resurrection of Christ. Nor does it arrive in a vacuum. Many of us just kind of go to New Testament passage we see in Bethlehem the birth of Jesus, and that's where we begin to build our understanding of God. 
by God's grace, he has spoken long ago at many times and in many ways. For centuries, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. Carl Henry gives this definition of revelation. Remember that revelation is God's gracious self-disclosure whereby he forfeits his own personal privacy that we may know him. If God did not speak, we would be absolutely hopeless and helpless. We would be left in darkness, in ignorance, if he did not speak. The forms of his revelation are many. God speaks, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans, in nature. Even his invisible attributes are made known. But here, in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, this is direct, verbal, or special revelation. Through human vessels, the prophets. Now, I think this helps us also understand why the author doesn't start with an introduction of who he is, but goes right to who God is. For the Jews, the ultimate authority was God's revelation found in the scriptures. This is where the author begins. He wants to anchor everything that's going to proceed after this in the scriptures, the holy scriptures that the Jews have anchored their lives upon. God is a God who speaks. And just in speaking, he is, he is disseminating his grace. It is God's grace that he would be a God who, who speaks. Long ago, God's speech came in visions, dreams, and clear mouth-to-mouth communication granted to the patriarchs, Moses, and the prophets. If you're taking notes, Numbers chapter 12, verses 6 through 8, I think most clearly shows us this. So this is a scene where Aaron and Miriam are being called before the Lord. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward and he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. So the author here in these first two verses of Hebrews, he identifies two ways in which God has spoken to larger kind of categories, the old and the new, long ago and in these days, these last days. And what he is driving at, not that the God who spoke there is different than the God who speaks here, but as clear as their message was, as authoritative as it was, it was always pointing to a definitive word to come. 
And so he is not saying that they are they're antithetical or irreconcilable. He has simply demonstrated that the new supersedes the old. The contrast, just kind of keep driving here, the contrast is not in the origin. It is God who speaks, but the medium in which. And that actually does matter. In days long ago versus these last days. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And we're going to have a chance to Lord willing, unpack this more, but there is a qualitative difference between the prophets and the son. There is a categorical difference in the sense between the prophets and the son. Now, the last days really can trip some people up. Many ask, when will the last days come? When will they start? The last days are not the days immediately preceding Christ's second advent, like we're looking towards the last days to come. The last days are the era, the entire era, between Christ's first advent and his second advent. We've been in the last days since Christ was born, and we are in the last days until he returns. That's really important when we're looking at the meaning of this first verse, going into verse 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Peter tells us that the coming of, of the Christ was prophesied and foreknown and in the last times, he has been revealed. 1 Peter 1.20 The last days arrived when the coming of the Son uh, came, the, the incarnation. And the Son has spoken the final and definitive word in the last days. Maybe another way to help us, looking at long ago, when he spoke in many ways, many times, you could use the you could you could place in there the word fragment or fragmentality versus looking at the new, the last days, and there's finality. So through the prophets, God had given predictions and foreshadowings in the Son, there is fulfillment and substance. We hear from the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 4, the fullness of time had come when God sent forth his son. A.W. Pink has written a very helpful commentary on the book of Hebrews. It's so thick, but so helpful as well. He writes this, Christ and his incarnation divides history. Everything before pointed toward him Everything since points back to him. He is the center of all God's counsels. God has nothing in reserve. No further revelation to make. That's why it's important to understand when are the last days. Because some even possibly now are thinking, 
there's a further revelation to come. I'm looking for another word to come from God. And what the author is trying to help us see very clearly is that since Christ came the first time and since his return, these last days, God has spoken through his son. We have the full revelation. The whole revelation and manifestation of God is known in Christ. He alone reveals the Father's heart fully. The first four verses of Hebrews chapter 1, we see the writer taking great lengths to support the superiority of the Son over the old. And in the coming weeks, we are going to strive to see how he unpacks that. All that he says about the Son to help the original audience and us understand that he is better. He is enough. All that has been revealed to us in the Son is sufficient and good. I mentioned the phrase or the term biblical theology. The author of Hebrews is helping create in those who read and understand a, a healthy biblical theology. What do we mean by biblical theology? Simply this. Biblical theology is the study of the process of how revelation unfolds. How God has revealed himself to us, how revelation unfolds, is how we can better understand God's redemptive plan. And so a, a healthy, accurate, sound biblical theology is actually crucially important in understanding scripture. Some people can just jump into parts of the Old Testament and with lack of a a large understanding of the unfolding of God's revelation, hone in on one chunk of scripture and build a theology, a structure that leads to false, unhealthy teaching because they have not fully understood how God long ago spoke in many times and many ways, but in these last days has spoken to us by his son. That unfolding of his revelation is crucially important in understanding who God is and how he reveals himself, how he saves, how he redeems the grand plan of redemption. Graham Goldsworthy writes this, Biblical theology is the process by which revelation unfolds and moves towards the goal, which is God's final revelation of his purposes in Jesus Christ. And so what we see in Hebrews 1, just in these opening verses, is that revelation, God speaking, is progressive. He spoke once in many ways, at many times like this, and now he is speaking in these last days through his son, and so we see this progressive revelation. It's moving from an age of preparation long ago to culmination. It culminates on or in Christ in these last days. 
or two very helpful words in, in having a, a robust, healthy biblical theology, promise and fulfillment. Brothers and sisters, this really does inform the way that we interpret scripture. Promise and fulfillment. It will be a helpful guide as you work through God's word. It is moving from an age that God spoke in many ways and at many times through the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us in his son. It moves from an age of shadows to substance. Truth, this many ways and in many times, is revealed, you could say, in germinal form. Think about a seed. In germinal form, with initial promises, and then developed, and this is also important, developed in historical context over periods of time until finding its culmination in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is how God's revelation proceeds or unfolds. And please don't miss this. The focus is all upon the Son. The superabounding excellencies of the Son. What he has brought and accomplished in the new covenant. It is the author's intent to take him who is the center, the Son, the light of Christianity, and hold him before, you work through Hebrews, this is what's happening, the author is holding him before all the other things, objects, things that they've experienced of old, and comparing and contrasting and helping the reader and us see the superabounding excellencies of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are Hebrews... Jewish Christians who are longing to look back. There are Christians today who start being tempted to look back and think the things of old are better, will bring a more robust Christianity. The full experience is in the old. We got to bring that back. Or I'm not finding enough in Christ, so I'm going to look forward. I'm going to look outside for something new. And the author is saying, it is firmly fixed, finality, complete consummation in Christ and Christ alone, the Son. And so, like a beautiful diamond with all of its facets, the rest of verses 2, 3, and 4 are just the author moving the beauty and excellencies of Christ, showing us different facets of who this Son is, why he is worthy of our trust and our praise, and why... Hebrew Christians and Christians today need to understand that he is better. Even if you may not think in your experiences like it's all that it's cracked up to be, if you have Christ, you have everything. Amen. There's an, an apt analogy given to us in Matthew chapter 17 in the Transfiguration. I want you to hear these verses. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. 
And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him, talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. This is such an apt analogy for what I think the author of Hebrews is striving towards. How significant are the words that immediately follow in this passage? And when the voice was passed and they finally lifted up their eyes, Jesus was found alone. The glory associated with Moses and Elijah, which for the Jews represented everything, It was eclipsed by the infinitely greater glory found only in the sun. Beautiful word picture before the disciples and for us, the readers, to see that it is only Jesus standing there. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. This is written so that the recipients of this letter or any other reader would not conclude that Christ was nothing more than just another instrument through which God spoke. And so, again, he is going to lay out, the writer of this book, just how superior Christ is to angels, to Moses, to the priesthood of Aaron, to the Old Covenant, to the sanctuary, to sacrifices, to the promised land. It is hard for us to imagine the struggle that a Jewish Christian was experiencing in the first century. Think for a moment, by clinging to the Messiah that was promised of old, they were to be severed from the Messiah's people. How perplexing that must have been. This was a great trial for many of them. Loyalty to Jesus, to the Son, involved separation from all the sacred rights and privileges that they experienced in Jerusalem. The author has work to do in we praise God that through the Holy Spirit, we are given the letter to the Hebrews. Lord willing, we will begin looking next week at this sevenfold description of the Son that we see in these few verses. A sevenfold description of the Son in order to, de to demonstrate His supremacy, His excellency. And so, the closing prayer this morning comes from A.W. Pink. It's the way that he begins his study in Hebrews, but I want to use it actually to close us out. And so please pray with me. Father, since this is your word, 
we know that it is vitally important for us as your people. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to humbly bow before you, before you, this letter's divine inspirer, and earnestly seek from you that preparation of heart which is needed to bring us into fellowship with the one whose person, offices, and glories are here so sublimely displayed. Help us to personally and definitely seek the help of the Blessed Spirit who has been given to the saints of God for the purpose of guiding us into all truth and taking of the things of Christ to show unto us. Father, in your word, in Luke 24, 45, we learn that Christ opened the understanding of the disciples, that they might understand the scriptures. May he graciously do so with us. Then the entrance of his words will, be, will give life and give light, and his light we shall see the light. Father, we pray your blessing upon this study. And Lord, as we reflect just on the first few verses, we praise you for your grace and being a God who speaks, you have spoken. And Father, may we look to the Son to see the full and final revelation. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen.